One of the questions uh, that I'm frequently asked is, um, why do you collect books that you do? And I always say the same thing. I collect them because they make me happy. Um, and if you drill into that, well, what, what makes you happy? And um, so a small question that I thought I'd ask because it, it, it goes to this is, what font do you use when you're doing email? And do you, make, do you do the font, which is kind of the default font that came with the iPad or the... Uh, or do you think about the font, you go on and kind of play around and you think, well, this one, I like this one. Why do you like it? Well, because it's easy to read or it looks nice on the page or it makes me happy. Um, well, this has been kind of a, an ongoing issue because um, uh, at any given moment, there's also the question of how does the uh, font take the ink? How much ink does it take? How does that ink sit on the paper? What paper are you using? How expensive is it? Um, do you need to make italics so you can get a lot of letters on the page on very thin pages? So as an Italian uh, writer of pornography, you can sell books people can put in their pocket in the 1500s. Um, so when you, when you drill into it, at the, at the kind of height of the, the discussion is the intersection between art and craft and design. And Russell is a person who is at that intersection and is at the top, he's an elite athlete uh, of this, one of the most distinguished artists and printers um, of our time, and a person who thinks continuously about what about the old technology do we want to preserve? What about the way in which the old technologies evolved do we want to continue um, with in terms of evolution? So I think you'll really enjoy this conversation and this talk. I've got a whole long list of things uh, that Russell uh, does and has done. He teaches, he lectures, he prints, he writes essays. Um, I think some of the high points are that he's uh, a master lecturer and he's the MFA program at the uh, Philadelphia um, uh, College of the Arts. He's, a, um, he's North American chair of the Guild of uh, the Fine Press Book Association. Uh, he was a printer in residence at the Bodleian at Oxford. Um, he's a trustee of the American Printing History Association and a, and a winner of the Rome Prize. So that's enough for me. Um, I'm told that by having us sit over there and me coming out, this allows Russell to make an entrance. <laughs> so without further ado, here's Russell. Thank you. Thank you. I've never um, made such an entrance at a talk before, so maybe it's a good sign. Um, but anyway, I'm very happy to be here. I first came to the Athenaeum in 1991 for one of the teas, I think. That, uh, I don't know if you still give them, but um, and I've gotten back a few times since, but it's always a pleasure. I just love this building. Um, the the book that I'm speaking about today is a book called Character Traits. Um, and Character Traits is actually a book in two parts. I like to think of it as being the two parts of my brain. Um, one part is a bound es uh, volume of essays about letter design, specifically about how technology impacts letter, letter design. Um, and then there's a portfolio of 25 prints 
that are uh, 25 different texts for which I've designed unique lettering that explore the ideas in the essay. Um, and so I like to think of it as the essay being about the traits of alphabetical characters and then the texts in the prints were chosen because they deal with human character traits. Um, and with books of this size, I, I worked on this book for about three years, um, actual pen to paper, three years. And um, when I work on books of this nature, I intentionally try to make them uh, processes of learning. I, I try to involve either a new technique, a new process, or a new avenue of thought so that while I'm making it, I'm learning myself. And um, with this book, that process got a bit carried away. Um, and so what I'm going to do is discuss the ideas behind the project, a little bit about the making, and then show you the prints as well. Um, when I say that I've been working on it a few years, the more books I make, the more I realize that you can't really assign a start date to something. And the more I think about it, the more the further back that start date goes. And I, I tend to think that I started working on character traits in September of 1989 when I first walked into a letterpress print shop. Um, oh, whoops. And began an apprenticeship in letterpress printing. Uh, for those of you who might not know, letterpress printing is a relief technique of printing in which uh, raised letters and images are inked and pressed into paper. It's the basic technology that Gutenberg invented in the 15th century and was the primary printing technology for about 500 years after that. Um, what was interesting about starting an apprenticeship in traditional letterpress typography in 1989 was that it was just at the moment when a new technology had finally presented itself that would take over from typography as the primary printing technology, digital technology. Um, and so on the left, you see a page from Adrian Wilson's The Work and Play of Adrian Wilson, which is a sort of iconic letterpress book in the California private press movement. And on the right, you see Emigre Font Foundry's Low Res uh, typeface. And both of these things happened at the same time. And they were right when I started printing. And in many ways, I feel like that coincidence sort of bore a kind of schizophrenia within me that I've been struggling with ever since between the looking backward toward the traditional and using contemporary tools. Um, so I just want to give a little a brief uh, introduction to what I mean when I distinguish typographic lettering and digital or digigraphic lettering, as I call it. And I'll just throw, show three images. This is um, written by John Stevens. This is printed from a metal typeface called Baker that I designed. Um, and this is in Galliard Italic, designed by Matthew Carter. And all of these images look fairly much like what we think of when we think of type. Um, but in fact, only one of them is type. The first is calligraphic lettering. The second is typographic lettering. And the third is digigraphic lettering. And so I'll show two more images to give you a sense of, so this is calligraphy by Thomas Ingmeyer, which is a wilder than the John Stevens example. Um, 
And then this is a digigraphic lettering of mine from character traits. And what you see from these two images, if you look here and here and here, is that with calligraphic and digigraphic lettering, letter forms are able to uh, intersect. They're able to relate with one another in ways that are simply impossible with typographic lettering. Uh, here is a Q kerning onto a U in metal type. And the Q can only go so far before it breaks. Whereas with calligraphic and digigraphic lettering, that is not, those kinds of restraints are not present. Um, and the reason for that is that the printed image that we see of a typographic letter form, the, the H, the I, the W, the I, it only tells us part of the story because what that letter form can do is actually controlled by the physical body on which those letters sit. That W has all that space there, and that space is going to stay there unless you physically file it away. Um, whereas calligraphic letters are written by a pen or pencil or whatever, brush. Um, digigraphic letters are drawn in the ether. Um, and this gives you a good sense of the, different, the technological differences. So calligraphic and digigraphic look awfully similar to one another. This does not mean that they are the same, but what it means is that maybe when we think of lettering now, it doesn't, we don't need to model it so much on what typographic lettering can do. That tends to be the, uh, the, the movement forward with digital type design is to make it look like type. But, which is fine for commercial needs, but for private press books or fine press books, I, I don't have to have the same considerations of legibility and, and immediacy of uh, textual transmission. And so maybe I don't need to look so much at what that letter can do, and I can think more about what other forms of lettering can do. And so just tuck that all that little bit in the back of your mind for a minute, and we'll go back to... Uh, seven years into my printing uh, life, I had a vision for a typeface um, for the Book of Job. It came out of nowhere, and uh, like most visions, it arrived almost fully formed and was completely impractical. I had no experience designing or drawing typefaces or letter forms, but the impulse was so strong that when I got out of the bed the next morning, I christened myself a type designer and started teaching myself how to design them. Um, or I guess what I should say is teaching myself to design what I thought were typefaces. Rather than designing typefaces, I started making a bunch of these weird manuscripts of drawn and painted letter forms uh, that were drawn with a compass and straight edge. Uh, the Athenaeum has one or two of these manuscripts in its collection. Um, and they, they raged, ranged in inspiration from classical architecture to um, this alphabet, which was inspired by Prometheus Bound, uh, this, which was inspired by September 11th, um, and the last one I made, Eclectic Geometric or Lunch with Nicolette, um, which is definitely here at the Athenaeum. Um, and, you know, when I think about the coincidence of the supposed vision toward type design and the practical work that I actually did, I, 
I didn't realize it at the time then, but now it's very clear to me that my impulse to design new type was inspired by the fact that the majority of type, metal typefaces available for me to use were at least 100 years old, and however pretty they might be, they uh, do not speak to our art historical moment. And so if I wanted to make new work, I needed new type. But the fact that rather than making type, I chose to draw letters had to have something to do with the fact that something in me knew that typographic technology was not the technology I was going to be working with. That there's some sort of impulse towards the digital or the scribal in these alphabets that I was making. Um, and ever since then, it, for over 20 years, that sort of alphabetical schizophrenia has informed my work. And so I make books that have these sort of single, semi-abstract letter forms. This is the D and the R from Ethelwald, etc. But then when I write about what they mean to me, I design fairly traditional-looking typefaces. Or I can take a deep dive into 12th century uh, alphabetical variety like that on Santi Giovanni e Paolo Ocelio. And again, I write about it in typefaces like this. I can make this G and O from linear A to linear Z. You should, you're getting the point. Um, this is my Gray Mulata typeface. And then the G and H from Roma Abstract and my Pizzolino typeface. And it, so 20 years of doing this, I finally realized that, wait a minute, the things that I'm designing that I think are typefaces aren't actually typefaces. And if they're not type, if the letter forms I'm making are not typographic, why should they act like they are? And, but the problem was is that something in me keeps those two impulses toward abstraction and representation separate. I just, the, the, and what I'm trying to find is a way to sort of bring them together into a more expressive alphabetical experience. And so what do I do? Enter the writing manual. So uh, writing manuals or calligraphic model books are, uh, is a genre of book that is, were published by writing masters to show potential students uh, how to write uh, various current or contemporary hands. They were usually, uh, the writing masters were usually professors of mathematics as well, and their manuals were meant for people who wanted to be clerks, basically. So they would teach you how to keep the books and then how to write invoices and correspondence to, if you were dealing with Dutch people, you needed one kind of lettering, if you were dealing with English people, another, and so on. Um, and this is one of my favorite writing manuals by Joaquim Jose Ventura de Silva from about 1820. And you can see there are two volumes. There's this, which is a letterpress volume of his weird ideas about the alphabet. The literature of writing manuals is fantastic because these guys all made up crazy theories, going back to Adam and everything else and, and you know how the classical... Uh, letterers divined the, the golden mean and all of this stuff. Just meaningless dribble that was really fun to read. And, um, uh, and then they would have a section of plates that would demonstrate the hands that they're talking about. And so it's interesting, with this one, you've got a letterpress volume and then an intaglio volume and, of plates. 
And while I was thinking about this book, I, I realized that I wanted to make a sort of digigraphic writing manual, a writing manual about digital lettering. Um, but like most of my books, I wasn't trying to teach prospective students, I was trying to teach myself. Um, and I used Ventura de Silva's manual as a model, just like his, I have a bound volume of essays and then a series of plates. But I realized that, okay, so my letters aren't typographic, so they don't need to act typographically. But if they're not typographic, then they shouldn't be printed typographically. They shouldn't be printed letterpress. Um, and, you know, I started printing letterpress in 1989. It's all, the only kind of printing I've done since then. But I suddenly realized that if I wanted to make a writing manual about digigraphic lettering, I had to print the, the lettering in Talio as etchings. So I had to buy an etching press and spend a year teaching myself how to print etchings in order to do it. So that was the first step of making character traits. Um, and one of, the, one of the reasons I wanted to use intaglio printing rather than relief printing is because you're able to get an extraordinary level of detail um, that you cannot get printing letterpress. So this is a B from Ventura de Silva. And this is the Chevalier typeface, which is a metal typeface inspired by this kind of lettering. You note the difference right away. This is like the blunt instrument. Um, and the reason it's that way is because if you have these tiny little lines so close in letterpress, they're going to fill in, they're going to gain ink, they're not going to look the way they're meant to. And so the typographic solution is to sort of dumb it down and give the impression of a shaded letter. Um, and But I didn't want to do that. I wanted to really get in. And part of the idea was, okay, if I'm making non-typographic letter forms, they can do things that typography can't do. So they need to be printed in Talio. And I'll just give you, a, uh, for those who would like a refresher, this is a relief plate. And so you see the surface that isn't cut away is inked. And then it's pressed into paper and it makes this print. With intaglio, the surface that is cut away is inked, and the, the, the non-cut surface is wiped away, and you get this print up here. And, but then there's another fun thing you can do with this, which is a simultaneous intaglio and relief print, where you first ink the intaglio section, and then wipe the surface clean, as clean as you can, and take a hard rubber roller with a stiff ink in a contrasting color and roll it on the top surface. And then in one print, you get a two-color image. It's called viscosity printing, or it, there are many names for it. But the, um, and I thought, well, you know, I, I love color. I, I do a lot of work with color, and I can't just do a bunch of one-color prints. I'm going to do all of these prints in two colors. Um, which created a problem because for 10 years or so, I had been working with uh, printing color in overlay. So the idea of uh, printing eight or 10 or 12 colors on top of each other, um, if you do that for a decade, you start to think about color differently. You start to think about color as a process of revelation that happens as you print. So it's not a foregone conclusion. You can adjust it. You can manipulate it as you go over and over. 
And I really like this kind of printing. Um, these are just some images that are done with that kind of overlay printing. But all of a sudden, what I was talking about was printing like this. So two colors adjacent to each other. It doesn't sound like a big uh, difference, but it's a huge difference. And so I realized I had to, okay, so I have to teach myself how to print intaglio, and now I have to teach myself how to think about color differently. Um, this says it was not a new world, but rather another chaos that it created in us. It's from uh, Oscar Wilde. Um, so in order to learn how to think about color differently, I just so happened to be going on a five-week residency in County Mayo, Ireland. And when I told people that I was going to County Mayo to study color, the usual response was laughter, because this is what people think of when they think of County Mayo. Green, brown, gray, occasional blue, um, and, and variations in between, um, you know, this uh, vibrant chamois, I guess you'd call it. But the fact is, is that the, the bog landscape, when you zoom in, becomes progressively more and more colorful with really fabulous combinations of color um, that I spent five weeks just basically walking 15 miles a day through the bogs making color notations and occasionally swimming in the ocean, which was fun. Um, and so I made a series of color studies that I was then going to use as the um, for the combinations in the prints of the book. Okay. I get home and it's time to start proofing. And so I'm just going to walk you through the process of making one print. There's me putting this sort of salmon-colored ink onto a plate, wiping it clean. You can see the, maybe you can see, the letters have the salmon-colored ink in them now pick it up and clean the edges, wipe it again, and eventually with newsprint to get the surface completely free of ink, roll up a contrasting color, roll it on, and then because my hands are filthy, I pick it up, I place it down while my assistant Nancy starts soaking a piece of paper in a water bath. She drains the water off of it, towels it dry, places it, and there's the print. What had never occurred to me before I proofed this was because of the two colors, if you're making a one color etching, say you're using red, you put your red on, you wipe it, you take a print, you take the plate back, you put more red on, you wipe it, you take a print. And working on that, we can get about 50 prints done in a day, in an eight-hour day. With these, because of the two colors, if I didn't scrub the plate clean with solvent between every print, the colors would start contaminating each other. So the first print would be great, and no other print would be acceptable. And so what that meant was dousing it with solvent, scrubbing it with a brush, and waiting for it to dry, which meant a half an hour for each print. 
To make the addition, we needed 2,375 prints, and first quality prints. And so if we got, say, 14 of these done in a day, we'd lose between one and four for various reasons throughout the day. So we'd have between 10 and 13 a day, 2,375. I actually pay Nancy. Um, <laughs> it didn't work. You know, so, the, um, so what I ended up doing was making two editions of the book, a standard edition in which uh, all of the plates, but three of them were printed in one color, and then a deluxe edition of the book in which many more were printed in two colors, and it came with a volume of linoleum cut color studies that I did based on the um, the paintings I did in Ireland. And um, the even with that lowering of the labor, um, it took the etchings took eleven months to print. Um, the letterpress took two and a half months to print, and uh, um, it was exhausting, and I'm really glad it's done. <laughs> Um, so that's the idea. Those are the ideas and the the reality of making the book. But one of the one of my real impulses in making my work, especially the larger books, is I've started treating them as exercises in reading. Reading is a big part of the 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 creative act for me. So I've done a extensive study of Euclid and. Uh, I'm reading Newton's optics now, which might come into something. But with character traits, what I wanted to do was take a deep dive into the 19th century. Um, the book was largely, um, it was made against the backdrop of intense uh, sorrow at the state of the world over the last few years. Um, and I felt like the 19th century would give me that kind of, you know, morbid, you know, poet maudit sensibility uh, that I felt was right for the contemporary um, world. And, and so originally I imagined that I would choose texts that in a fairly si simple arc. My idea was that I would choose 25 texts and you would read them and you would feel this movement from youthful optimism to an older sort of cynicism or pessimism, which is a simplistic idea, and it turns out it doesn't work. If you want people to feel that narrative arc, you need to write it yourself. But if you're using other people's words, the best you can do is a kind of impressionistic um, picture. And so as I worked on the gathering the texts, um, I, in the essay I wrote a, a little bit, which I'll just read, um, Eventually the qualities of light and dark, innocence and corruption that dominated the chosen texts changed my understanding of the narrative. The arc was no longer a single broad stroke. Instead, the narrative was composed of a series of smaller arcs, all vaguely fitting into the larger one. The linear quality of the original narrative was supplanted by a more diffuse meditation on the relationship between creativity and madness, the transformation of optimism into cynicism, the deleterious effects of childish self-regard continuing on into adulthood, and the isolating loneliness of the digital world. Um, and so now I'm just going to show you the texts, the prints that I made, and, um, and I'll read them off um, 
This is a Libyan proverb that says, my belly before my children. Uh, it was referring to uh, Gaddafi and his taking of natural resources and not sharing them with the um, citizens. Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts. This is William Blake, as a man is, so he sees. Uh, this is Fernando Pessoa from uh, Book of Disquiet, Everyone Has Dreams. These are all linear, just drawn linear. Uh, this is De Quincey, at that happy age, if no definite boundary can be assigned to one's power, the spirit of hope and pleasure makes it virtually infinite. This is Harriet Jacobs from her slave narrative, I had my season of joy and thanksgiving. Uh, this is, I, you know, when you make a book about human character traits, it inevitably becomes about your character. And this plate, um, one day, sort of dark night of the soul, for some reason I typed into Google Translate Veni Vidi Vici, and this is what came out, Come See Vici. Um, this is John Ruskin's Six Characteristics of Gothic. It reads, savageness, changefulness, naturalism, grotesqueness, rigidity, and redundance. This is another Fernando Pessoa from his tobacco shop. I have done more in dreams than Napoleon in life. This is Charlotte Bronte. I never in my life have known any medium in my dealings with positive, hard characters, antagonistic to my own, between absolute submission and determined revolt. I have always faithfully observed the one up to the very moment of bursting, sometimes with volcanic vehemence, into the other. This is Thoreau, why should I feel lonely? Is not our planet in the Milky Way? Uh, this is Mary Shelley. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. Um, I took uh, chimeras of uh, realities of little worth to mean money and the interchange of an artist. And, uh, and so I designed a lettering that's inspired by financial engraving, purposefully left the hyphen out of grandeur so that this would look like the symbol for euro and then printed it in a green-black. Uh, that just gives a sense of some of the thought behind some of these. Uh, this is H.G. Wells. Um, what, this is the one with the salmon and the blue that I showed. What a wonderfully complex thing, this simple seeming unity, the self. Who can trace its reintegration as morning after morning we awaken? the flux and confluence of its countless factors interweaving, rebuilding, the dim first stirrings of the soul, the growth and synthesis of the unconscious to the subconscious, the subconscious to dawning consciousness, until at last we recognize ourselves again. This is uh, Mrs. Millman writing about John Ruskin. I could scarcely believe that one who could think and write so beautifully could act so unworthily. This is Frank Worsley, the captain of the Endurance. 
the rapidity with which one can completely change one's ideas and accommodate ourselves to a state of barbarism is wonderful. Moby Dick, there is no folly of the beasts of the earth which is not infinitely outdone by the madness of men. Ruskin, I don't know how to manage him. His mind is so terribly active, so full of invention, that he can hardly stay quiet a minute without sketching either ideas or reminiscences and keeps himself awake all night planning pictures. He's describing John Everett Millay, and what he doesn't realize is he's describing John Everett Millay as Millay is falling in love with his wife, Effie Gray. Um, Everything is a necessary part of everything else. That's Frederick Douglass. If I could rightly be said to be either, it was only because I was radically both from Jekyll and Hyde. Mr. Jang dreamed different dreams. Mr. Jang was Kim Jong-un's uncle who was executed and one of the capital charges was specifically that he dreamed different dreams. And finally, from King Lear, O oh, reason, not the need. Thank you. <laughs>